In the investigation of homicide, certain behavioral characteristics are extremely important when profiling killers and later on when interviewing them. A couple of years ago, I was doing some consulting for a prison, and I happened to meet one of the inmates and do some work with him. And one of the interesting things about him was that he right away remembered my name, would always speak to me when he saw me. And that was pretty unusual because most inmates, people kind of come in and out. They're interchangeable. But he was so incredibly charming and so smooth. He was also interesting because he was one of the only people I met in prison who proclaimed his innocence. People often think that there's no guilty people in prison, but in fact, most of the inmates that I worked with were pretty clear that they did do what they were accused of doing or convicted of doing. I found out later that this individual had been diagnosed as a psychopath, and his crime was he had picked up his babysitter after they had babys- after she babysat, and they he took her to a remote park where he proceeded to torture, murder, and kill her. City streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli will lead this investigation. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli and my special guest this evening, Dr. Joni Johnston, a board-certified and eminent psychologist and a valued member of our Forensic Death Investigations team on a thread of evidence. So, Joni, uh, it's a fascinating introduction to our show. So let's talk to our team members about psychopath. What is a psychopath? A psychopath basically is someone with a personality disorder. And it's a personality disorder that really has some pretty troublesome personality traits. So for example, um, these are individuals who oftentimes are uh, manipulative, they are compulsive liars, they have the, a lack of empathy for other people, they have a lack of guilt and remorse, uh, and they're individuals who oftentimes are very versatile in terms of the crimes that they commit, and they also are responsible for about 40% of the violence that we see in prison. So what is psychopathy? So psychopathy, as I mentioned, is a cluster of these personality traits. And we often associate, there's a lot of kind of misconceptions about what a psychopath is. We oftentimes think about serial killers, for example, when we think about psychopaths. Most psychopaths, though, actually are not in prison, and most inmates in prison are not psychopaths. So about 1% of the population in the United States, we think, meets the probably the criteria for psychopathy. And about 15 to 20 percent of inmates would meet the same definition. So it's something that's been that a person has had for a very long period of time, resistant to change. And oftentimes, Dr. Ron, we think of these individuals as not people who suffer themselves, but are pain creators for the people that they know. You know, that's that's so interesting. How would a a person like you, a board certified psychologist, how would you 
diagnose someone like that, you know, they, they come in uh, for an evaluation. You're going to have a discussion with them. You know, I have so many questions to ask you. I mean, how do you start that conversation? How do you begin the assessment process and the evaluation, uh, which leads to diagnosis? Well, it's very difficult oftentimes to recognize a psychopath or spot one in an interview. And we, you know, we know that from, as a forensic psychologist, it's always impossible. It's always important to get collateral data anyway when you're interviewing somebody in prison because they oftentimes have a very vested interest in presenting themselves in a favorable light. What are some of the examples of, of the collateral information that you would need? So, for example, I'd want to see this person's criminal history, their police records, their psychiatric records. I might want to talk to family members or um, custody officers who've interacted with that person. So what I'm looking for is information that either confirms or discredits what this person is telling me. Now, is this something that, that people are born with or do they, do they acquire this disorder uh, you know, over the years as they grow up? Is it drug-induced? I mean, how does someone, I mean, we're all, hopefully we're all born at the same level, right? I mean, we, we uh, unless there's something congenital. So how does the, the issue of uh, psychopathy develop? You know, help me with that. So here's what we know and here's what we don't know. We know that there seems to be a genetic component to developing what we call callous, unemotional personality traits. So about age three to four, we can start seeing a relatively small subset of children who start behaving differently than their peers. And differently, not just with typically developing peers, but also different than kids with other behavior problems. So these are kids who, again, don't show much empathy for other people. They may be bullies um, at preschool. They may be mean to their pets. They begin developing. They oftentimes have a harder time attaching to their parents. So we start seeing these children um, at a pretty early age develop, not psychopathy, because you have to be 18 to diagnose somebody as a psychopath, but they do start developing these kind of warnings signs. And parents oftentimes notice these and don't know what to do. What could the warning signs, besides what you've just discussed, how could parents, you know, possibly, or other people, possibly be confused with the behaviors that are being exhibited and think there's something else rather than uh, that the person is developing, you know, psychopathic tendencies? Well, the really confusing part is that children who have severe behavior problems are often diagnosed with a conduct disorder um, as they get a little bit older because parents will report, again, these severe behavior problems. Teachers report behavior problems. Peers report behavior problems. So this is kind of across the board. It's not that they're just having trouble at home. Here's where it gets kind of confusing. About 75% of children who are later diagnosed with a conduct disorder, which is kind of a precursor to psychopathy in some in some kids, about 75% we know um, it seems to be due primarily to their environment. They, are, they have parents who engage in this kind of harsh and inconsistent parenting style. They're oftentimes victims of childhood abuse. So it's almost like these children become overreactive to other people. They oftentimes become hypersensitive to any threat. There'll be a child at school who has a neutral expression, but that, that child will see it as a threat. So they're kind of overreactive. 
On the other hand, about 25% of these children, and these are the children that we kind of have to worry about in terms of later developing psychopathy, have an underreactivity. In other words, they'll see a child fall down on the playground and cry. They might think it's funny. They just don't have the same empathy. There's an underreactivity to any kind of pain from other people. They report not feeling very anxious themselves, not feeling a lot of fear themselves. So they really do act differently than even kids with other behavior problems. And we think that that part of it, that underreactivity, is almost like an emotional disability that these kids are born with. That does not mean, though, that they're predetermined to become psychopaths later on. As a matter of fact, if we can catch these kids at a young age, we can um, do some things like help their parents, parent them differently. We know that these children, for example, tend to not respond to punishment. And parents get so frustrated sometimes by that. And what they'll often do, of course, is what up the ante with the punishment. Well, this punishment didn't help. Let's see if I really punish you, if that will help. When, it, when in reality, these kids tend to be pretty impervious to punishment. They respond much more to rewards. And so if we catch these kids, we can help parents parent them differently. And we can also engage in empathy training. And when we catch these kids as preschoolers and, and incorporate empathy training, we do find some success. So, so again, predisposition does not mean destiny. Now, do they treat everybody the same way, Joni, or, or do they have, you know, like with regards to relationships, uh, do they, do they, is it unanimous that they treat everybody indifferently, uh, or are there some people that they, they tend to resonate with? Well, what's interesting is if you think of, this kind of emotional, almost like a disability, this inability to recognize distress in other kids and other adults, to not feel anything you know, when, when it comes to pe- people being hurt or being injured. That's kind of an across-the-board thing. So this emotional underreactivity. Now, on the other hand, some of the kids who have been abused, who don't have this genetic predisposition, these conduct-disordered kids who don't have these kind of callous, unemotional traits, definitely have the capacity to form bonds with other people. They oftentimes will engage in reactive aggression, which is like most murders that we see when somebody loses their temper, has a poor impulse control. They react to somebody and are aggressive in that respect. And later, after the fact, these kids can kind of go, I'm kind of sorry I did this. I flew off the handle. But again, when we we talk about this relatively rare subset of these kids with callous unemotional traits, not only do we see them have little, you know, have a little awareness or understanding of the distress of other people, as well as a lack of concern with it, it's almost like they don't have the capacity to feel remorse or, or guilt. They don't. Well, do they have friends? I mean, can they gravitate towards someone and 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 uh, have uh, lasting, you know, friendships, or, or is everything that they do? If they have a friendship, is it relatively short? Well, sometimes it's short. I mean, I think when children, and we're talking just about children, we can talk more Mm -hmm. about teenagers and adults in a little bit. I think children will form uh, brief relationships when children get older who have these callous unemotional traits if there's no intervention. A lot of times, they'll almost attract followers as opposed to true friends. So there's kind of a power imbalance. They'll oftentimes get people to do things for them 
Um, and so they use these relationships almost as a means to an end versus having a true friendship that's a mutual friendship. And so what do what do parents do besides, you know, offering out punishment when they see misbehavior? What types of things uh, with the kids tend to work and, and what things don't work? We already know punishment doesn't really work. Uh, sometimes being nicer to them. I mean, what what is sort of the the technique that a parent would do to get some sort of emotional buy-in by uh, the child that might be a psychopath? So a couple of things here. First of all, we really are talking about a small subset of children. So these are not, you know, all parents have issues with their kids at times. All kids misbehave. All kids test the limits. So these are children oftentimes that parents realize something is not right. Um, they, have, they may have other children and kind of go, this kid is so different from any of my other children. I can't connect with this kid. This kid isn't connecting with me. This kid is laughing um, at his sibling or, or doing things to really upset this, the sibling intentionally. Really the best intervention in those kind of scenarios is for that parent to get professional help okay. for that child. And can they, uh, do they, do they uh, reach out? to their siblings and and harm them? Do they reach out to animals in the family and maybe harm them? You know, I'm looking for some behavioral red flags. Yes, and I think, you know, all of the above can be the case. One of the things when we're talking about aggression in children is when we're talking about um, conduct disordered children, again, who don't have these kind of callous, unemotional traits, we find this kind of reactive aggression. One of the kind of scariest things about children who do have these kind of callous, unemotional traits is they will use aggression as a means to an end. They'll plan it out. They will, you know, it's not like, again, a reactive kind of thing. They'll plan these things out. So it's not spontaneous. It's not spontaneous. It's premeditated is I'm going to do this to get this kind of a reaction. Well, you know, Joni, I'm sure that we have parents that are listening to a thread of evidence right now. And I think the question that they might be asking themselves if they have some children with behavioral problems is, oh my God, I'm listening to Dr. Ron and Dr. Joni Johnston talk about psychopathy. Could my kid be a psychopath? How would I know? That is a good question and a scary question for a lot of parents. And couple things. One is I always tell parents, please don't diagnose your children. I mean, it's so tempting to do that. There are all these checklists or all these articles that we read, and yet it can just drive us crazy and send us over the edge with worry. So that's the first thing. Number two is make sure you know what typical normal development is in your children. And, you know, we think, well, we all know that, but we don't. We come home with a baby. There's no instruction manual. And so we think that we should know, like, you know how our children are supposed to act at every age. So yeah, yeah and, and, and our kids are all different, right? I mean, I've got four kids. Every single one of their personalities are different. And I know you have kids, too. And, and are they different as well? As night and day. Right, exactly. I mean, they are as night and day. So you're right. So th- there's the complexity of child development and then the complexity of the fact that each child is different. So that's the first thing. Number number three would be to, hey, keep a journal, keep a diary. You know, if you're concerned about a child, start writing things down, start documenting what your concerns are. And then specifically, there are six signs that parents can watch out for. And it's important when we go through these to realize these are not one-time signs. These are things that you should see a pattern. Ah, and I think that's really important, the whole behavioral pattern issue. 
So let's get into those. Okay. So again, it's got to be a pattern. Don't diagnose your child. Take lots of notes. And if you, as I go through this, if you're kind of going, oh my gosh, that is my child, then what do you do? You find an expert to help you sort this out. Like Dr. Joni Johnson. <laughs> like Dr. Joni Johnson. How about that for a plug? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Thank you, Rod. So the first one is, you know, is kind of hard because we want all of our children to be charming. And yet one of the things that we know with budding psychopaths is the fact that they tend to be extremely charming. And they tend to create a good impression very easily. They tend to be pretty manipulative. Teachers like them at first. And so, you know, it becomes a little bit reinforcing for that child. So if you have a charming child, congratulations. It doesn't mean your child is a budding psychopath. But if you have a child who you find is pretty manipulative in their relationships and their interactions with their peers and with their teachers and with you, it's something to kind of pay attention to because that's not going to serve that child well in life in the long run anyway. Uh, Number two, we've kind of talked about a little bit, and that is not feeling guilt or remorse. Um, And again, we know that young, young children don't really understand what guilt and remorse is. But certainly by age three, kids can recognize when they've hurt somebody's feelings. They've hurt them when they've done something wrong. And when you have a child who, they don't care, they don't feel any kind of remorse, you can see that in their face. And this happens over and over again. And you're kind of going, this is not like my other kids or other kids aren't like that. And we always want to be open to feedback from other people, from other people's uh, parent, other kids' parents, from uh, from teachers, from Sunday school teachers or whatever. We want to be open to that. Doesn't mean they're right, but we want to be open to that. Number three is these kids tend to be fascinated um, about certain things to the point of almost being obsessed with it. Oh, like um, what, what kind of things? Like technology, like, um, uh, you know, how an animal works or looks uh, with gizmos, with a watch, recording device. They become really, really focused on that to the point that they'll take things away from other people um, because what, what matters is me. And so you might have it, but if I want it, I'm going to take it from you. Oh, really? Okay. Um, also, number four, we want to make sure we want to talk about a short temper. Again, this is not something that distinguishes, you know, psychopathic uh, predisposed children to a lot of other kids. You know, a lot of kids have short fuses. But when you're seeing all these things in combination with each other over a period of time, it's something to pay attention to and something to get some assistance with. So short temper, um, they'll do something nice for a minute. Um, you know, five minutes later, they're angry. Um, they go into a rage about something. You say no. Again, most kids don't like that. But this is a kid who's really over the top. Would this be, if they go into become emotionally captured and, and you know, this becomes uh, a state of rage all of a sudden, is it an, an irrational state of rage? Is it something that a normal person wouldn't necessarily get get so angry about? It can be um, with children, but the other part of it is sometimes is parents will report that it's almost like the kid is also play acting. Okay. Like the kid is aware that if I exhibit this rage, that this is a good response for me to get what I want. Okay, so it can be manipulative, right? It can be manipulative, but it also can be somebody who just gets way out of control over a small thing. Um, and then we talked a little bit about, too, about 
punishment insensitivity. And that's really difficult for parents because one of the things that we learn as parents is the carrot and the stick with our kids, right? So we have the carrots, you know, we we want them to do well, so we praise them, we give them motivation, but we also set limits. And again, one of the things we find is that, that some of the kids who have these kind of callous, unemotional traits is they just don't respond to punishment. And they say, I don't care. And they don't care. And that's very hard for parents. And then getting the cycle, as I mentioned earlier, of kind of up in the ante and punishing more and getting less of a response. So that's important to figure out a different way to parent this child. And the last one that we've touched on is the lack of empathy. We've actually found that if you do brain scans on some of these kids, what you find is the amygdala, which is the area that we all have in our brain that helps us with emotions, is incredibly flat and unresponsive with some of these kids, which argues for a genetic or a biological component, at least for these kind of traits. Well, you know, and, and I also think that it's important, and, and you've done a great job of enumerating, you know, some of these red flag warnings for parents. But you know, I also want parents to kind of keep in mind that uh, you know, even good kids have bad days. And, and even good kids, uh, or even kids with slight behavioral problems, and all kids are going to have a variety of behavioral problems. That's just as kids are growing up, and they're kind of feeling out the world, and they're feeling out their environment, and they're feeling out their parents, and you know how the parents are going to respond to particular behavior, which is somewhat manipulative, right? But even they, even those kids that are certainly not psychopathic, they might even have bad weeks or a bad period of time where they're going through some sort of stressor or something like that, and the stressor causes them to act out. You are absolutely right. That is crucial to remember. And so I always say, remember, it's got to be persistent. It's got to be over time. You also probably need to get feedback from a lot of different sources in that child's life. When in doubt, get it checked out. Exactly. And again, get it checked out with someone that is a professional like you, Joni. And you're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli and my favorite guest, Dr. Joni Johnston, a board-certified psychologist on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field, and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police at Amazon.com. We're back on a thread of evidence with Dr. Ron Martinelli, a forensic criminologist, and my special guest today, Dr. Joni Johnson, a licensed psychologist. So, Joni, you know, in our first segment, we were talking about children and some red flag warnings with children, but what about adolescents? How about teenagers? Teenagers are so tricky because for a couple of different reasons. Number one, we know that it is a time of such huge change. I mean, you've had teenagers, I have teenagers, and it's like... It is a hormone <laughs> war going on. 
24-7. It's a whole new world every day. Every day. Every day you meet a new person that you thought was your son or daughter. (laughs) That's right. And some of them you like and some of them you don't like. (laughs) Absolutely. So, you know, one thing I would like to, like, encourage our audience to do is if you have not seen the movie, we need to talk about Kevin. It is absolutely a pretty horrifying, but also very interesting and somewhat realistic look at a child who has these callous, unemotional traits, which I've been talking about because, again, we don't diagnose children with psycho- psychopathy, how this, this kid who has these traits kind of blossoms into a really disturbed and, and really a psychopathic teenager. And it just gives you every perspective, the perspective of the parents, uh, the child, and this kind of evolution that takes place with a somewhat um, disturbing ending. But again, it's a very, very good one. So, But it does illustrate just how complicated this whole picture is. Um, in one of my articles I just wrote recently for Psychology Today, I actually used that title, We Need to Talk About Kevin, but I also mentioned some really horrific cases we've had recently. Um, there was a one out of England, a young man named Harry. Lee, who at age 19 was just given 14 years in prison, which is, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the justice system. And That's a lot of years. That for, is. For, 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 the great, uh, for the Great Britain uh, justice system, you get 14 years, or actually any place in Europe, you get 14 years. That's a pretty strong sentence. It really was a strong sentence. And what was so interesting about this case is that his criminal career started at 13, and that's one of the challenges is that, is that, again, for this small subset of children who become teenagers, um, and again, most children who even have these callous and emotional traits don't necessarily blossom into a teenage psychopath. But this particular person, at, starting at age 13, uh, began sexually abusing kids. Wow. He um, had a, quote, hit list of about 30 people that he wanted to kill. He aspired to being a serial killer. And here's somebody that finally, at 19, after doing doing all these crimes and being dealt with in the juvenile justice system um, recently got this 14-year sentence. Uh, But we are really at a loss in some respects about what to do sometimes with juveniles who look and act a lot like adult psychopaths. And yet we also know that when you assess teenagers um, for psychopathy, that it seems to be their scores tend to be inflated by immaturity. And so in other words, a lot of these kids will get better over time. So how do we know if this was truly somebody who is, uh, you know, a juvenile psychopath, or if this is somebody who's going through a really tumultuous adolescence, and they're kind of going to grow out of it. So we as forensic psychologists are kind of trying to figure out how do we use this assessment You know, do we use it in the criminal justice system? We know that jurors have a very strong negative view of the label psychopath. So there's that concern. Okay, do we label this person as a psychopath knowing that that's going to affect maybe his outcome, how soon he's his sentence, his supervision? um, Or do we not? Do we give the benefit of the doubt and hope he outgrows it? So we're still trying to figure that out. Now, in the case of like Harry Lee, um, there was another uh, teenager recently at 16 who murdered a six-year-old girl and he was tried as an adult and was sentenced to 27 years in prison and they I know that the judge and the uh, took into account not only his crime 
but also his entire presentation afterwards. He exhibited no remorse whatsoever, um, was laughing a lot of times in court. Uh, This was devastating to this little girl's parents, as you can imagine. And so um, we can pretty much gauge based on his demeanor, his crime, his history, that this is somebody who at 16 meets the definition for a psychopath. So we have to figure out what to do with these individuals. Well, you know, as a, as a juvenile investigator, as a juvenile detective, one of the assignments I had, which was uh, probably one of the best assignments I ever had at the San Jose Police Department when I was their first gang investigator. And so I was involved in, uh, in juvenile crime uh, at the street gang level which, of course, graduates up to the adult level. and uh, But I want to talk about just the juveniles mm-hmm. that I came in contact with. And things have gotten, things were pretty bad there where you have juveniles committing a homicide or multiple homicides to in the furtherance of the gang. But one of the things that we are seeing now uh, in the United States and really internationally, especially with gangs like MS-13, just the horrific crimes that these juveniles are committing. And I, I, I want to kind of get into your head a little bit because I guess the question that I would ask is, you know, when we have kids that come from regions of extreme violence, like in Colombia where you have cartel violence, some areas of Mexico where you have car- cartel, narco violence uh, in uh, in San Salvador, uh, in Honduras, which is a very violent country. And they grow up in this violent subculture. Does that lend itself to psychopathic behavior? The next part of the question is that's related, Joni, is now we are getting a lot of immigrants that come into our country from war-torn areas such as Afghanistan, Syria, Africa, where we have these uh, children soldiers, mm-hmm. and they are committing atrocious war crimes, and now you know they're coming in relatively unvetted. And I guess the question is: the people that come from these extremely violent environments—I mean, violent—I mean, environments that we can't even imagine—the way that we've uh-huh. grown up. Does that play a role in developing a psychopathic personality or going back to what you talked about originally, is it genetic? Can, can people become psychopaths? Can they be trained to become psychopaths? That is such an interesting point because you've probably heard of psychopathy and then we've heard of sociopathy. So there are these two different terms, and they're often used the same. But in theory, the reason there are these two different terms is because a psychopathy, which we've talked about a lot, we think has more of a genetic component. We don't oftentimes see the same horrible history of abuse, poverty, violence in um, psychopaths that we do in sociopaths. And so sociopaths sociopathy or sociopath, the theory behind that is these are individuals who were not born with any kind of genetic predisposition to lack empathy or lack guilt or lack remorse. Instead, their environment, as you just alluded to, is so violent, is so impoverished, is so abusive, that it's almost like these individuals develop a value system or a culture that looks 
sociopathic or become sociopathic. And these individuals oftentimes are different in this respect. They, with their in-group, have strong relationships oftentimes. They love each other. They have loyalty to each other. They have bonds with each other. One of the saddest things I remember hearing um, when I first started working at a maximum security prison is I was interviewing this young man. I think he was maybe 18 or 19. And I said to him, you know, it was his first prison term. And I said, you know, what? how do you feel? What is it like being in prison for the first time? And he goes, Hey, it's not bad at all. I mean, my cousin so-and-so was on the sea yard and my uncle's on this yard. And, you know, and it's like just listening to him talk, it just became so clear that this is somebody who grew up in this culture. And so for him, this was kind of normal. Well, you know, and I've written four books on, on street gangs and the street gang culture. And I think for people that don't have any idea about what the street gang subculture it is. It isn't a culture. It's a subculture. And they are very much an extended family. And as a matter of fact, as you alluded to, and I'll add to it, the the relationships and the loyalties that gang members have with each other are more often than not stronger than the parental uh, loyalties and uh, the, fee- the the filial loyalties that they have in relationships with parents and, and and family members like you know siblings. They look at each other towards each other as as brothers and sisters, uh, and, and and it's a blood born relationship if you know what i mean you know blood in blood out is what they say and they're not embarrassed at all about going to prison i have interviewed many kids at the youth authority and that could hardly wait to get to state prison okay and obviously i've interviewed mexican mafia uh, you know uh, lma you know mexican mafia the black gorilla ha- family the aryan brotherhood the um the uh, nuestra familia and uh, the texas syndicate and ms13 all in prison gangs and of course especially ms13 you see all the tattoos and the prison related tattoos i know you've worked inside for so long you see you know the guardhouses and the barbed wire and the teardrops and all of that that isn't because they're embarrassed of going into the gang and they actually look at being in prison as a rite of passage and some of them actually in a bizarre kind of way to people like you and me because uh, it seems totally irrational are very proud about being institutionalized well it certainly is a culture and i have to say that having met and evaluated many gang members in prison i never ever felt threatened by a gang member because i was not relevant i wasn't in a different gang as a matter of fact i liked several inmates that right. I you didn't with. pose a threat to them. exactly right and i felt like if i had had trouble on a yard i can tell a couple of guys who would have immediately got had my back because right. again i wasn't part of that world it doesn't mean that if i'm part of that world and i'm a member of another gang that that person won't be as ruthless or as violent exactly or, or as murderous or homicidal as anybody else but it, right. it is different you're absolutely right, right. Um, another thing Ron that is kind of an interesting story about the same thing is um, not only are the rules different in terms of looking out for members of your gang or members of your group but sometimes there's less leniency so one of the first um, female inmates or gang members that I interviewed, I remember telling me she was in prison because she had stabbed a rival gang member with um, 
baby scissors. She was literally cutting her child's baby, I mean, toenails, and this happened. And the reason that she did this, which is kind of interesting, is that her her um, her, her rival uh, person had called the police and had reported her for stealing her cell phone. And first of all, she didn't steal the cell phone. And number two, you don't ever call the police. And so when the person found her cell phone, she didn't call the police back and say, you know, and she was absolutely had to pay this person back. And she looked at me and she said, if this had been you, I would never have done this to you because you're not, you don't understand the rules. Right. You don't that, understand a, how life works. That's a big deal because mm-hmm. to us, it's, uh, you know, let's not say us because we're not normal people. Okay. Let's just say that. <laughs> if we were normal people, that would, <laughs> that would be, that would be irrational. That would be completely irrational. But to professionals like us that work with these people on a daily basis, we totally get it because we understand the rules. Okay. And, uh, but like I said, to other people, that's bizarre. It is, and it is very hard to kind of get your arms around until you're kind of in the middle right, of it. Right, right. Um, but I think it is important when we talk about juveniles and looking at psychopathy that we do, I think, I think we can make an argument for evaluating juveniles for psychopathy. And, and, and the reason I think we can we can justify that is because you know and I know that there is a pretty high relationship between psychopathy and violence sure. in adults. Sure. And we also know there's a lot of research that suggests that assessing juveniles for psychopathy is a good predictor of short-term violence at least. Now, let me ask you this question, and I think I know the answer, because uh, you get into court from time to time, and uh, you can share with me you know, your juvenile superior court experience, but I think it's extremely important uh, for people like you and I, the criminologist, especially the, the forensic psychologist, to get in before the trier of fact, who's either a judge, like in juvenile superior court, there are no juries, it's a judge who's going to make the decisions, who's going to listen to the case and make the decisions. Decisions. Uh, and of course, of course, they always depend on a sentencing officer, and the sentencing officer depends on you mm-hmm. to provide the input. Uh, but and also in uh, in regular you know superior court or in federal court, when we are dealing with a trier of fact that might be a jury to listen to us, and especially someone like you, Joni, because this is well within your wheelhouse as an educational witness. So what are some of the things that you express to those trier of facts when you're, when you're in the court? What do you think are the most important things to know? Now, you've mentioned some fantastic things in here today. For, you know, one of the, I think one of the most notable things that you've talked about in here today is the difference between psychopathic behavior and sociopathic behavior. And yeah, and I think one of the things I'm asked to talk about when I go to court oftentimes is violence risk. You know, is this person right, exactly. ready to be released? What are the factors? And of course, as a forensic psychologist, I'm looking at a whole host of variables, and certainly psychopathy may or may not be one of them. But I'm looking at the circumstances around the crime. I'm looking at um, prevalence or lack thereof of mental illness. I'm looking at if the person had a mental illness, was there a link 
between that mental illness and a crime. That's one of the things I think that gets missed sometimes is that, you know, we as we can have, you know, schizophrenia, we can have bipolar disorder, and we can still murder somebody because they slept around with, with their boyfriend or girlfriend. A lot of times mentally ill individuals aren't, you know, first of all, 5% of all violent crimes are committed by somebody with a serious mental illness. So that's certainly the minority. But we also know that individuals, um, you know, it really does vary in terms of, you know, of, of their of their history and what they've been doing. So I look at those kind of factors. We look at what we call protective factors in terms of that person being released. Um, do they have a supportive family? Do they have a place to go? Do they have any skills? Do they have a substance abuse problem? Are they amenable to treatment of that substance abuse problem? How much insight does this person have about his crime? How much remorse does this person have about his crime? Um, how do we know that he has remorse about his crime? Because, you know, it doesn't take long to figure out how to fake that. Sure. You so there's lots Especially of for ways. a sociopath, right? That's right. That's right. So we have to look at all those factors. So we look at protective factors and we look at aggravating factors. Um, again, was this person, did this happen in the heat of passion? Or was there evidence of pre-planning and premeditation? That obviously we know that in what we call instrumental violence or premeditated kind of crimes is certainly much more serious and the person's more likely to recidivate if they've done this kind of instrumental kind of crime. It puts them in a whole different category. Well, I like that because that's very consistent with the issues of mitigation and aggravation. Right, uh, those are extremely important in the sentencing structure. Hey, you're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, my guest today, licensed psychologist, and one of our favorite experts on our forensic death investigations team, Dr. Joni Johnson. And we'll be right back right after. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com. For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Dr. Joni, you've done a great job explaining psychopathy and then also the sociopathy so i guess people would want to know do you know any famous psychopaths well given that zach efron just played ted bundy recently and certainly all the teenagers i think were watching that show um, it's really hard to talk about psychopathy without mentioning ted bundy because he seemed to be someone who was the textbook definition of a psychopath he was somebody who was charming. He was manipulative. He was incredibly callous in how he would get these young girls to go with him. I mean, when you think about putting a cast, a fake cast on your arm and going up to innocent young girls and asking them to help you, I mean, it's just, it's just hard for me to wrap my head around that, even with all the work that I do, because it's just taking advantage of somebody's goodwill. Um, he was a bright guy. He was somebody who was attractive. And yet, I think, what is his famous quote? Um, I'm probably the coldest 
SOB you'll ever meet. He absolutely seemed to have no emotions whatsoever. And he was pretty much of a narcissist that defended himself in court, right? Played his own attorney, did he not? Played his own attorney, cross-examined people that he had victimized. I mean, he was just somebody that really fit the definition. And we oftentimes see that that narcissism and that grandiose self-image in psychopathy. And, And that's really interesting that you mention the fact that he has an opportunity to interview his victims because to me that's part of it that's all part of reliving and pretty much uh sort of bragging about what he's doing and also sort of psychologically torturing them absolutely absolutely i mean he really was somebody who just kind of fit the classic textbook and like uh you know several psychopaths or a lot of psychopaths there really was not a lot of abuse in his background i mean the only thing that really kind of was odd in his family is that he was raised as if his grandmother was his mother so his sister actually had gotten pregnant at a young age she had delivered him and yet was raised as his sister for a long period of time and he found that out and of course that would be disturbing but it certainly is not something we can point to and go this would be so traumatizing for somebody that they would kind of go off the deep end and begin killing all these different women you know that's so interesting when i began my my law enforcement career in the 1970s <laughs> uh, I uh, I knew at the beginning, I knew nothing really about law enforcement. I'd come from an education teaching background, but I became fascinated right away with criminology. And there was a great uh, criminalist, and his name was Ray Doherty. I don't think uh, Dr. Doherty is alive anymore, but I was in his class, and he was the person who had interviewed a very famous serial killer in the Santa Cruz area by the name of Edwin Kemper. I don't know if you remember Edwin Kemper, but a, a, a true psychopath. I do. And just for our you know team members and listeners, uh, Edwin Kemper, who lived in the Santa Cruz area, picked on women from the University of California, Santa Cruz. And in those days, which were kind of the hippie days, a lot of single girls, uh, co-eds, would hitchhike. And that's where Edwin Kemper got his victims. He killed 13 women, and uh, and then he killed his mom. His mom, I think, was one of his very last victims. And uh, he drove around in a specific car and had a kit together to murder them. And uh, what he would do is uh, he would pick them up in the car and then would, you know, just be very charming and, you know, know, where do you want to go? And they would tell him. And, of course, he would take him in a totally different direction. But then he would immediately switch from a very charming person to an extremely intimidating person, eventually locked him in his trunk, take them, and I believe he took some of his victims all the way across the San Francisco Bay Area to the Fremont Hills, and he had sort of a a killing field up there for his victims. And I'll never forget uh, the interviews, and I got to listen to the interviews that uh, Dr. Doherty did with him, and it was always just matter-of-fact, just talking about, I mean, he had, uh, like some of these psychopaths, especially serial killers do, uh, they have a photographic memory. They can remember everything. And one of the things that he said was when they put their hands on the doorknob to get into my car, they were dead. And so he had 
no empathy, no remorse. And uh, being a psychologist, I don't know if you remember this victim, but he picked up two girls that were hitchhiking together. Now, the reason that the that the co-ed started hitchhiking together was for protection, and they felt a sense of safety. So he decided one night that he was going to pick up both of these girls that were together hitchhiking, these two college co-eds, and uh, he started being very charming, got them both in the car, and then after driving for a little bit, and again he's heading over towards the Fremont Hills, he pulls the car to the side of the road and he uh, brandished a weapon. I don't remember which weapon it was, but he took one of the gals, and it was a gal that was a psychology major, and put her in the trunk of the car and kept the weaker of the two gals up in front, took them out, and then killed the one gal, and the other gal is in the car, in the trunk, hearing all of this. And when she got out, she already knew that the first gal had been murdered, and so now she's trying to de-escalate, and she's trying to talk with him, and used every bit of her psychology, empathy, you know, helping him, I understand you're having some issues, you feel troubled, you know, how can I help you? Please don't kill me, and I can help you. And the last words that he said to that woman was that, you know, I know you're a psychology major, you've done an excellent job, but of course you know I have to kill you. I mean, some of these stories are just amazing. They are amazing. They really are amazing. I want to talk about one more thing about him, Uh, a couple of more things about Edwin Kemper, just to show and underline some of the things you talked about with regards to his personality. At one time, a couple of detectives from the Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Department who were investigating these crimes because they happened outside, primarily outside the city of Santa Cruz, where you see Santa Cruz is, and they got a tip to come over and talk with him. And he had literally killed a co-ed the day before and had her head, her severed head. Because what he would do with all of these women is that he would cut their heads off and put the heads in his freezer. And then would take them out from time to time and talk with them and do other ugly things we don't need to talk about on this show. But he literally had the severed head of a co-head, of a co-ed in a bag and next to uh, a couch that he was sitting in. When the police officers, detectives, came over to talk with him, he asked them to sit down right on the couch next to the severed head that was in the bag and had a very nice conversation with him, uh, not knowing anything about what they were talking about. Of course, he knew everything that we were talking about. Unfortunately, the detectives are sitting right next to the victim's head. They never even knew it. And then they finished the interview, and he walked out of the house, and he bragged about that later. He was so intelligent that across from the courthouse, there was a bar, and it was called the jury room in Santa Cruz. And so, you know, detectives would go there, attorneys would go there, prosecutors would go there, judges would go there, and they'd have a beer after work at the jury room. And he used to go in there and strike up conversations with prosecutors and detectives to learn more about how the detectives were trying to find this serial killer in Santa Cruz. It just shows you the temerity of this person and yet how how extremely intelligent he was. It does. You know, there's a kind of a slang term called the duping delight. 
that a lot of serial killers will talk, I mean, I'm sorry, psychopaths will talk about. Um, and that is just this kind of fun, like it being a game. So, for example, I'm sure that Ed Kemper got a lot of thrill out of interview or talking to police officers with his head right there. When I listened to his interviews with Dr. Doherty, there was no doubt in my mind. And mind you, I'm a rookie police officer taking a criminology course, my very first crim course, and I couldn't help but be extremely alarmed but fascinated at the same time of the of the psychology behind uh, the entire event, the issue of uh, psychopathic behavior, but especially the forensic interviewing techniques of Dr. Doherty, who was just fantastic. You know, I wanted to be just like him. And you are. <laughs> Thank you. But uh, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's exactly what you've been talking about, Dr. Joni. Well, it really is interesting when you look at, you know, psychopaths in terms of, you know, one of the myths about psychopaths is that they are all so smart. And the ones that are smart, like Ted Bundy, like Ed Kemper, can do a tremendous amount of damage. We know that. But what's interesting is that when you look at psychopaths who have been assessed, and we'll talk about what that means, but have been assessed, and you do IQ test on them, what you find is that they often have very good verbal skills, and they're often really good at reading people. They pick up on these cues, and they can mimic people. But in terms of actual intelligence, if you looked at you know psychopaths across the board, they're not only not smart as a group, they tend to be less intelligent as a group. And so we think this, this kind of street cred or this kind of ability mm-hmm. to kind of pick up, almost like you know, a predators that can well, you know, sense a prey. Exactly. So they have the good street smarts, but they don't have the book smarts. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And oftentimes they will make stupid mistakes. Um, and that's what will end up getting them caught. Either they'll think that they're smarter than they are. Mm-hmm. Or they're smarter than all the police officers out there. They're smarter than the prosecutor. And then they'll, they'll mess up. From Silence of the Lambs. One of my favorite serial killers, okay, of <laughs> all time. Who could forget him? Who I mean, could forget him? Yeah. I mean, fortunately for us who work in this, in this arena, there aren't very many, if any, Hannibal Lecters out there. Right, there that are, are extremely smart, intelligent, are, right? Yeah, extremely intelligent. Exactly. And can kind of be that manipulative. Well, you know, um, let, me, let me ask you a question, because you, you've just, you know, to me, you've explained the profile of Charlie Manson. What do you think about Charlie? Do you think he was psychopathic, or do you think he was sociopathic? <laughs> I think, first of all, interesting, I have to mention his IQ, which was 77. Oh, the, the definitely yeah. not so definitely was, not an intelligent so, guy, Exactly. So, so he was not somebody, again, right. but he was incredibly in tune with people's vulnerabilities. Oh. He was very charismatic. Manipulative to the extreme. I think it's difficult because when you look at Charlie Manson's history, his history of abuse was so extreme at an early age. His mom once tried to sell him for a pack of beer as an example. So it's difficult, I think, to really look at him and kind of go, was this nature or nurture? Um, Could it have been both? Yes. And even with people who have this genetic predisposition, a lot of times it takes these environmental triggers to kind of set them off. But we know that his history was so severe. Well, I've got a side story about Charlie Manson. All right. So 
I told you that when I first started out, and most people don't know this about Dr. Ron, but he started out as a high school teacher. It had nothing to do with law enforcement. The I only, did not even know that. Well, here, you know, the only time I'd ever been in a squad car was in the backseat, if you know what I mean, before I got hired, okay? But, that's another show. That's a whole other show for at another time and to be edited later, okay? But uh, in order to be a teacher, uh, you have to basically teach for about a year, all right? And one of the, the assignments, and I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and there is a prison right outside of, of Cal Poly, and, it, and uh, it's CMC, the California Men's Colony. And my first free teaching assignment in order to qualify for my teaching credentials, sort of a residency, is I had to teach uh, history and political science at CMC. And I was in, I was in the B quad. And, uh, but when uh, you go to CMC, when you are brand new, you've never been there, and you're, you're going to work there, of course, they have to give you a tour. And so what they did was they took a trustee, uh, and they put me with the trustee, and he's taking me around and showing me, you know, the different quads and, and, and the east facility and the west facility. Well, we were in the east facility, and we're walking around, and we spent about, oh, I don't know, close to two hours together. And it was a very charming man, a uh, very nice person, and he looked kind of familiar to me. And I, uh, and then I, I remembered who he was. And so we do the tour, and we're, he takes me back out to the front lobby, and he says to me, he says, uh, you know, I've been with you for two hours, and, and you're different. And I say, well, how so? He says, you never asked me what I, how I got here or whether I, I really did what they say I did. And he says, uh, my, name's, uh, my name's Charlie, and people call me Tex. And I said, you're Charlie Tex Watson. And he says, yes, and you remember, Charlie Tex Watson was the right-hand man of Charlie Manson and was involved in the Tate and LaBianca killings and everything else. And he was a chaplain's assistant. So he gets in, and by the way, he was an extremely intelligent person. Mm -hmm. He was a straight-A student in college, and he was an athlete, and he gets hooked up with Charlie Manson. I wouldn't say that he was a sociopath, and I wouldn't say at all mm -hmm. that he was a psychopath. He was just somebody that caught up into it, became, uh, after being involved in a number of murders, became severely remorseful, and literally found God, and to this day has remained a chaplain's assistant never paroled, mm -hmm. and I don't know what prison he is. He may still be at CMC in San Luis Obispo. But I just thought that was a fascinating story. And I asked him about Charlie Manson. And I said, what did you think about Charlie Manson? He says, greatest mistake, biggest mistake ever made in my life, completely manipulated me, was sort of a flim-flam man, and look what he's done to my life. So I just thought that was a little side story of interest. It's a great story because it does show the complexity of people because you know people oftentimes think that everybody who's in prison is a psychopath or a sociopath and I think that's definitely not true there's all kinds of stories that get people in prison certainly we know that there are more psychopaths in prison than there are out walking the streets um, but it is more complicated than we might think well I just have so much enjoyed th this conversation and uh, you taught dr ron something new like you always do and that's why you know we love having you on a thread of evidence joni why don't you just take a second and tell people out here our, our many listeners how they can get a hold of dr joni johnson especially if they have a kid that's problematic <laughs> <laughs> or just going through something themselves 
Well, probably the easiest way to reach me is through my website, and that's drjoanyjohnston.com. Um, I also write a regular blog for Psychology Today called um, The Human Equation, and there's a lot of information there about how to reach me. And then I'm a new columnist on America Out Loud. And so we're I really think, happy to have you. I'm really happy to be doing it. So there's also, I'm sure, contact information on there as well. So I'm happy to answer questions or to hear from people. And as you know, you are my favorite person to be oh, on the show well, with. stop it. But listen, <laughs> for God's sakes, get on America Out Loud. Go over to uh, bloggers and please read her column on America Out Loud. We are really so proud to have her on the America Out Loud staff. And here's some interesting information for you. I've invited Dr. Joni Johnson to be a consistent co-host on America Out Loud. So pretty soon, you're going to see her on a thread of evidence shortly. So thank you again for joining us on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud. (laughs) 